Open your Bible to two places with me, if you will, today, the book of Matthew, chapter number 6, and the book of Luke, chapter number 11. Matthew, chapter 6, and Luke, pardon me, Luke, chapter number 11. Matthew 6, Luke 11. And we're going to read from both of those passages today as I talk to you about Jesus' school of prayer. Jesus' school of prayer. And in the book of Matthew, will you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word together? Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then in the book of Luke, if we will, chapter number 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, Luke 11 and 1. It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. He said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and he ends the prayer. And thank you, and you may be seated. I really had not planned to preach a series of messages on prayer. It wasn't on my agenda, but I, observing our church and its life and so on, I decided that we needed to hear and be encouraged and instructed and exhorted to pray. And so, Let's see, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I began talking to you about prayer. We also implemented a change in our service to begin with prayer where everybody just huddles here, and we pray for about one minute to start the service. And for the first day today, while we are sitting here, while down the hall there, there are people praying, 10 people and one of our deacons, and we'll do that for the next 25 weeks and that's six months, and we're going to have them praying for this service specifically, and we're not praying for all the needs like we do on Wednesday night. We're praying for this service. We're praying that God will send revival to our hearts individually, and so all that's going on right now, and in addition, other times that we've emphasized prayer here. I just had this very, very strong sense that uh, we needed a fresh touch from God and we needed to pray. And last week, as I said, God really blessed us. We had 17 additions. We may have had that once or twice in history, but I don't, I can't say that I really remember it. So to me, it was um, a sign of the Lord's approval, perhaps, that he was pleased. Now, a week or so ago, I was with a man and we were in my car, we were riding to lunch, and he said to me, Pastor, I'll be honest with you, prayer is the weakest part 
of my spiritual life, of my walk with the Lord. It's the weakest part. And he said, I wish you would write out some things and help me to know better how I can pray that I will have a fulfilling, a meaningful prayer life. Well, that reminded me of what the disciples said to Jesus right here in Luke chapter 11. Keep both of those passages open. We'll flip back and forth a little bit. But remember that Jesus was praying in a certain place, it says. And when he stopped praying, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John, referring to John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. Note, they didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to preach. They didn't seem to be as impressed with his preaching as they were with his praying. Note, they have watched him perform how many hundreds of miracles at this point, maybe thousands, supernatural things. And yet, they didn't ask him, Lord, help us to do miracles. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. They uh, didn't ask him to help them sing and give them beautiful voices. They said, teach us how to pray. This seemed to be the number one thing on their mind, the one thing that they observed in the life of Jesus that they aspired to more than any other thing in his life. Teach us to pray. I know in reading the biographies of great Christians of the past, over and over I've read something like this. I come, I come to the end of my life, and I've studied theology, and I know the Word of God, but you know what? I wish I had prayed more. The one regret a lot of people seem to have as they near the end of their life and they prepare to meet the Lord and prepare for eternity, they say, I wish I had taken prayer more seriously. And so I took that and I said, maybe I need to focus on that for a while here at the church. And Jesus gave them a model. This model is given to us two times in the Scripture, in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. And this model was a pattern, a template, if you will, for us so that we would know how to pray. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus never prayed this prayer. If he did, it's not recorded, and so I don't think he did. It was not meant for him. He didn't pray it. It is a model, a template, a pattern whereby we know how to pray and to pray intelligently, to pray in a manner that pleases our Heavenly Father. It's repeated twice in the Bible. There are two versions of it, but I studied those two versions and a couple of things I think it's necessary to point out. This prayer was given to the Lord or given by the Lord on two different occasions. It's not the same prayer exactly. In Matthew, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, where he is teaching the principles of the kingdom of God. And so he gives the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. We really ought to call it the disciples' prayer. It was for the disciples. So he gave it to the, us as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in the book of Luke, he gave it to them as the answer to their question or to their their. their uh, reply to him that we want you to teach us how to pray. So, two different occasions we know from the context here. Also, the prayers differ. They're not quite the same. 
Both of them inspired of the Lord. Doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong, but it was inspired of the Holy Spirit. And, he, and the authors wrote down a little bit of difference. They, Luke, for example, ends with deliver us from evil. And uh, has no, or it, it doesn't say, rather, deliver us from evil. And it doesn't have an amen on it in the book of Luke, if you notice that. There's no amen. And then both versions are brief. And maybe we'll learn from that in our public prayers. The longer that I've prayed publicly, the more I try to pray briefly publicly. And I know that the real praying, the most important praying, is not in public. It's private praying. It's what we do when nobody's listening. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to convey anything. We're not trying to get people to pray about a certain issue like Israel, for example, today. But we're just talking to the Lord from our heart. The prayer has 66 words only in Matthew. Try praying one time in 66 words. It's hard to do. Very hard to do. It's so brief. It's so concise. It's just so pregnant with meaning. Everything in it is just right to the point. In Luke, it's even briefer, 56 words in Luke. In the Matthew account leading up to it, and if you'll go with me to the book of Matthew, Jesus leads up to giving the prayer by giving us some instructions. Look in verse number 5 of Matthew 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand in the market praying and in the synagogues. They do it to be seen of men. He warns us, don't pray to be seen of men. Don't pray to impress other people. It's so easy to do. My goodness, I know I've done that, and I'm ashamed of it. You say the words you think people are expecting you to say. And as a preacher, the tendency is to sound religious. And I don't want to sound religious. I want to sound genuine. I don't care anything about sounding religious. But the temptation is there because you know people's expectations. So don't pray to be seen. That's why private prayer is much more authentic, much more sincere usually than is um, uh, public prayer. Verse 6, he says, find a private place to pray pray. A closet, he calls it, but anywhere that you could pray in secret. It's a room. It can be any place where you can get alone and you can just talk to the Lord authentically from the bottom of your heart. Pray in secret, he says. Then in verse 7, he warns us against vain repetition in prayer, where we say words that we don't mean. We say words that we're not even thinking about. We're just playing over the old tapes that we've heard in our minds. And we might as well be praying, now I'll lay me down to sleep, you know. It's not from the heart a prayer. And so he warns us against repeating words and phrases without thinking. This would make me think that God's not interested in ritualistic prayers. That's why we don't stand and say the Lord's Prayer here every week. That would be a violation of his of his instruction not to, not to be repetitive in our praying. And again, public prayer, it would seem to be, it ought to be brief because he said, you will not be heard for your much speaking. It's not how many words we pray. It's not the arithmetic of prayer. It's having the right attitudes and the right heart in our prayer. 
Now, the context, particularly in Matthew chapter number 6, is what we call kingdom principles. The Lord is teaching the people in the Sermon on the Mount what we call kingdom principles, the principles of His kingdom. Where is the kingdom of God right now? It doesn't exist as a literal political entity anywhere on the earth. There's no place you can go and visit and say, this is the kingdom of God. So where is the kingdom of God? Well, the Bible says the kingdom of God right now is in the hearts of saved people. If you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is in in you. It's internal. It is in you. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, the kingdom of God is within you. And the Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness. It's not all of these uh, political things people think about. However, there will come a day when the kingdom of God will come to earth in a literal way. The kingdom of God will be a political entity. Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, is going to rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to have a government that will cover the entire earth. And that's why what's happening even in Israel this morning is highly significant. Because we know that someday Christ is going to come and set up that kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, the the millennial kingdom, we call it, the kingdom age, the millennium, when Jesus Christ rules here on the earth. Now, probably the greatest selling book on prayer ever written was written by a man from South Africa. His name was Andrew Murray, one of the great Christians of past history lived at the end of the, la- of the 1800s and early 1900s. Traveled the world. He was a contemporary and friend of D.L. Moody. Andrew Murray wrote a book, and the name of the book is With Jesus and the School of Prayer. Now, if you ever want to buy one book on prayer that is the end, as far as I'm concerned, of teaching people how to pray. Get you a copy of that. And by the way, it's still a bestseller. You can buy it even today on the internet. I think they've changed the name of it. But the original title was With Jesus in the School of Prayer. And it's a devotional book, and it lasts for 31 days. There's a 31-day reading there that Andrew Murray takes you through the, the whole doctrine, the theology, if you will, of prayer. And it's one of the most heartwarming, instructive, intelligent books that I've ever read on the subject of prayer. So today we're going to enroll in Jesus' school of prayer here for a few minutes, and I'm going to try to help you and instruct and encourage you in your prayer life. And so we're going to go to the Lord's Prayer, and open your Bible right now to the Matthew version, if you will. We'll use that because it includes phrases the other one doesn't include. And so we're going to see some principles here. I'm going to give you principles. Now, I've heard people teach the Lord's Prayer, and they taught it as if you had to do it in order, like Jesus gave it. And I'm going to go through it in order because that's a logical way to communicate. But look, I don't want you to think you have to pray down through the Lord's Prayer. This is a model for our praying. This is a pattern for your praying. It is not for you to pray the Lord's Prayer. It is for you to take the principles that our Lord taught and use them in your time of prayer. Now, you have some room there, I think, on your program, and I'm going to give you seven principles here, seven Ps that I'm going to pull out of this, and you just write that one word or two words down, and I think you'll, 
It will guide you as you try to pray and uh, improve your prayer life. Number one is it's paternal. The Lord's Prayer is the principle is paternal, or it's the principle of relationship. What do I mean? After this manner, pray, our Father who art in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. And so we begin praying with this attitude. I'm talking to my heavenly Father. I have an earthly father who passed away, a wonderful man. I loved him deeply. He always treated me so well. And I think about him probably still almost every day. But do you know what? I have a heavenly father that was far greater than my earthly father. He has power, all power. He has all knowledge and all wisdom. He is the father of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in heaven. The Bible tells me his location, his throne, if you will. And the word father implies relationship, doesn't it? So if you want to write a note there, it's paternal. It's a paternal relationship. My father who is in heaven, I became his child through salvation. I wasn't born his child just because I was a human being. I became his child through the new birth. Jesus said, you have to be born again. So I was born into his family. And in John chapter 1, it says that as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the what? The sons of God, the children of God. So I'm the child of God by virtue of the fact that I trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, And that made me his child, and he is my father. One other thing I think it's important to remember is a father-child relationship is a permanent relationship. It doesn't change. Even though I may not acknowledge my father or he might not acknowledge me because I'm so far from him in an earthly sense, then he's still my father. Once I'm born into a family The father is always going to be my father, and he could uh, disown me. My earthly father could have disowned me. I could have brought disgrace to his name. But do you know what? I'm always going to be the son of Frank Monroe. That will never change. And once I'm saved, I'm eternally secure. My heavenly father, I'm in his family, and he is my father, and I am his child by virtue of salvation. So we began with the attitude, a relationship, a paternal relationship. I'm talking to my father. Number two is his presence. Uh, In prayer, I'm seeking his presence in my life in a special way. Or you could say they're the principle of worship and praise. And Jesus is teaching the disciples to worship the heavenly father. Hallowed be thy name. That's an old word. We don't use that word much today, and we only use it in a spiritual sense. To hallow means to exalt. To hallow his name is to treat his name as being holy, to treat his name with reverence. It has the idea of the very deepest respect that we can attribute to one that our Heavenly Father is not just the big man in the sky. 
I don't like to hear people talk about him like that. He's not just the big fella. He is God. He is the sovereign one of the universe. And so I treat his name as holy, and I treat it with reverence. He's the creator. He's sustaining my life. He has all power. He's omnipotent. He has all knowledge. He is wise beyond our comprehension. Our Heavenly Father, above all, is holy. The Bible talks about His holiness more than any other attribute. And so when we pray, remember who you're talking to. This is God, the only one like Him, the unique being that we refer to as the Almighty God. His names reveal His character. You know, there's over a hundred names of Jesus Christ in the Bible alone. There's 200 names, if you include all the names of God and the compound names of God and the names of Jesus, over 200 different variations of His name. And why is that? Why are there so many variations of His name? It's because we wouldn't know God except through His names. You see, we can't see Him, we can't feel Him, we can't touch Him. It's not like observing another person or something in his creation, the stars or the moon or something. The only thing I know about God, the only thing I, you know about God is what the Bible reveals about him or what nature reveals about him. Everything else is speculation. Everything else is imaginary even. The only thing you know about God is what the Bible says about him, and nature, you can see his handiwork. And in the Bible, he gives us all these names. He is the way, the truth. He is the life. He is the creator. He sustains us. He is the redeemer. He, it gives name after name after name, and each of those names give me a little bit of information about him. And so, I can become an expert in theology by simply studying the names of God. Therefore, if, I, if I'm going to know God, I must know His names, and I must honor His name. The only thing more important than His name is His Word. He says, I've exalted my Word above my name. Other than that, His name is all important. And that's why the third commandment says, don't take His name in vain. Be careful how you even use his name. The ancient Jews would not even speak his name. Today, they won't even spell it. They spell it G-D, and they won't even enunciate it with their lips, uh, 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 a very orthodox Jew. And so, you see, they understand the sacredness and the holiness and the supremacy and the majesty of the name of God. When you're praying, remember who you're talking to. And praise Him. Psalm 100 and verse 4 says, Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. When you come into His presence, do it with thanksgiving. You hallow His name when you acknowledge that the gifts come from Him. It says, Enter His courts with praise and thanksgiving. And that can take many forms. Singing praise to Him, playing instruments. In the book of Psalms, they praise the Lord with the instruments, even it says with the cymbals. When she hits that cymbal over there, crash, 
Why? That's a form of praise to the Lord. It, it may not be the way you've thought about it, but even the symbols are praise to God, the instruments. We praise God in our prayers. We praise God as we read and study His Word and get to know Him through that. So the second concept Jesus is teaching the disciples, first of all, remember God is our Father. There's a relationship. Secondly, there's worship. We come into His presence, and boy, He is the high and holy one of Israel. We lift it up. And the third word is priority. Priority. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. That's the most important thing of all on this earth. The most important thing anybody could ever say about me is not he was a pastor or he was a father or he was a good husband. No, the most important anything anybody could ever say about me or you or anyone else is he did the Lord's will. He did the Father's will. The kingdom was first in his life. He was obedient to the will of God in his life. And so this is the principle of submission, priority or submission or obedience. Thy kingdom come. Do you know that every time you pray the Lord's prayer or pray those, that phrase, you're asking for the Lord Jesus Christ to return to the earth? We're praying for his second coming, but we want to see him. My goodness, what a mess things are down here right now, huh? Ukraine, Israel, our own problems in America, and the impact of that upon our own private lives. Why, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we want him to come. We're looking forward to it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, the last prayer of the Bible is a prayer for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to pray in this manner is to pray for the Lord Jesus Christ, to hurry up, Lord Jesus, we want you to come back. But secondly, it's thy will be done. It's to submit to his rule. It's to say, Lord, I acknowledge you as the master and I am your servant. You can't pray that prayer sincerely and genuinely and at the same time say, Lord, I've got my own plans. I don't care much about your will. I'm going to do what I want to do. No, no. You, that, that prayer then becomes null and void. Priority. This is where we intercede too. See, this is intercessory prayer where you would put that in the Lord's Prayer. Because I pray for God's will in my family. Are all your family members saved? See, you would pray, Lord, I want your kingdom to come in the heart of my son or my daughter, my, my family member. I want your will to be done in their life. Some of them are not living for you very closely, Lord. I want your will to be. You're interceding for the people you know. This is where we pray for unsaved people that we know and might have on our prayer list. This is where we pray for the missionaries, that God will bless their work overseas and that people will come to know Christ and that the kingdom will reign in the hearts of those people and that they will be willing to do the Lord's will. This is where we pray for our nation. Paul later says, I want you to pray for kings and all that are in authority. Well, we intercede for them. What are we praying for? When I pray for the president, what am I praying for? I'm praying that he will find and 
Be willing to do the Lord's will, though he may not ever realize how he arrived at that, but that God's will will, will be done, that his kingdom principles will reign in the life of the, of the leader of our country. The fourth thing Jesus taught us was give us this day our daily bread. That's provision. That's provision. That's asking him to provide for us. That is the principle of supply. That's the principle of dependence upon the Lord. You know, we don't know much about this, honestly. I don't know much about this. And you know why? Because I've been living in the most affluent, blessed time in all of human history. Boy, I don't think we have any clue as to how blessed we are in America, and especially those of you who are, you know, you're on the second half of life. We've lived through the best time ever, ever. You know, the affluence, the material blessings, the freedom that we've had. Stop and think about, I mean, we've had our troubles and we've had our problems, but you know what? We've, we've lived in a wonderful, wonderful time. All this technology has brought such comfort to us, such affluence, such wealth in the country, the wealthiest nation ever. And you know what? We don't know much about praying for our daily bread. Most of us have a cupboard that if we didn't, we, we might not like it, but we, if we didn't go to the store for 30 days, it wouldn't matter. We could eat. We got meat in the freezer, and we got cans in the cupboard, and we got refrigerator full. And we could coach for quite a while. Some of us have hoarded it up. We've got a lot. We could live for a year or something, you know. And so when you have so much, it's hard to say, Lord, will you bring our bread for today? And a lot of people in poor countries and so on, they, they pray like that. I got enough for today. Now, Lord, will you give me enough for tomorrow? And they pray to the Lord out of need. They, they must have a supply. There's a dependence upon him. Bread always throughout the Bible represents any basic need. Food, shelter, utilities, clothing. A car is a necessity in our world. It would be a form of a, a basic necessity that we have. Money. Isn't it strange how... We use the wording of the Bible in our vernacular, and we don't even think about it. For example, uh, you won't, I don't hear it anymore, but I, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager and in college, bread meant money. I need some more bread, man. And it takes more bread than it used to take right now, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know, basic necessities. Lord, give us, give us our daily bread. Give us the things we need to live day by day, the material needs. But bread also in the Bible sometimes is spiritual. It's symbolic. And what did Jesus say in the book of John chapter 6? He said, I am the what? I'm the bread. I'm the bread that gives life, spiritual life, eternal life. I am the bread. If you consume this bread, you will live forever and you'll live forever. This is the principle, the kingdom principle. We're not praying 
a little rote prayer here where we just got to get it all lined up. But these principles have to permeate our prayer. Number five is pardon. The principle of forgiveness. Matthew says, this is interesting, Matthew says, forgive us our debts, our obligations to God and other people. Luke says, forgive us of our sins. And then later says, and those to whom we're indebted. The traditional version of it that's used in most of the liturgical churches, forgive us our trespasses today. All of them basically mean the same thing. Our debts toward God refer to our sins, our trespasses, our failings, our need for forgiveness. This is why I don't call this, I don't want to call this the Lord's Prayer, because the Lord could not pray that phrase. The Lord never needed to pray, forgive me of my sins and trespasses and debts, did He? No. Jesus couldn't have prayed this prayer. It's for disciples. It's for people who have sinned. And at salvation, though, how much of my sin was forgiven? How much of your sin was forgiven when you trusted Christ? All of it? You sure? If all of it, then why do you say this? Oh, I'm tricking you. You're exactly right. It was all forgiven. When Jesus dropped his head and says, it is finished, how many sins were paid for? All of them in the past, present, and future. Amen? All sin was paid. The sin debt was wiped out. Jesus Christ bore the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And they were paid for. Well, why then did Jesus say we need to pray and ask the Lord to forgive us of our sins? Because I am God's child, and I'm forgiven of my sins as far as my salvation is concerned. But when sin is in my life, it disrupts my fellowship with God, my fellowship. I can't walk closely with Him and known sin, known unconfessed sin be present in my life. And so Jesus said, you pray that prayer of daily cleansing, just like I need a bath every day, I need spiritual cleansing every day. Thoughts come into my mind, and they're displeasing to the Lord. Words I say displease the Lord. Actions that I do displease the Lord. And if I'm a serious Christian, if I'm really going to get hold of God and have a close relationship with Him, I've got, to, I've got to keep short accounts with God. I can't let sins pile up for days on end. And so every day I'm praying, Father in heaven, I hallow your name and you are a holy God. And since you are so holy, you cannot even look upon sin. You turned your face when your son bore the sins of the world. So cleanse me today, Lord. Just wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ again. Cleanse me from my sins because I want to be right with you. I want my relationship with you, my fellowship with you to be good. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Forgive others just like God when Christ died on the cross, 
forgave all of us, so I am to be big-hearted. I'm to be a forgiving person, which means I'm to search. And when I'm praying, it's the time I search my heart. Is there any bitterness here? Is there any anger? Is there any malice towards people here? And so I pray, forgive me, Lord, of my trespasses as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Then the next word is protection. Protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of the translations say from the evil one, because the evil there can be a person. I think the marginal rendering even says that in your King James Bible. That deliver us from the evil one. It's not delivering us from God. It's delivering us from Satan himself. Turn in your Bible to the book of James, because I think this is worthy of the moment here. In the book of James, chapter number 1, and verse number 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, his own sinful desires, and he's enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And then when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. And so you have this sequence that's set up in our lives here. And Satan comes and tempts us and can use it, in fact, to destroy us. And we're, so we're in this spiritual war that was the message two weeks ago. And we're not going to win that war with human psychology and methodology and knowledge. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to God through the casting down of sinful temptations. Temptation also, of course, here can mean trials and problems that we have in life. The last word is praise. Praise. So we begin prayer hallowing our Heavenly Father's name, and then we end our prayer praising our Heavenly Father. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And again, we praise God for who He is. We thank Him for what He does for us. Let me say it again. We praise God for who He is, His greatness, His holiness, His majesty, the greatness of God. We thank Him, though, for what He's done for us. Notice in the book of Luke, Jesus' model prayer doesn't end uh, with an amen. He didn't put an amen on there. And what does amen mean? It means, so be it. Do you know that amen is one of those few words that are universal, that anywhere you go in the world, you can say amen, that means the same thing in every language? There's a few words like that. One of them is Coca-Cola. <laughs> anywhere you go in the world, you can ask for a Coke, and they know what you mean. And anywhere in the world you go and say amen, amen, however you pronounce it, it means the same thing. It means so be it. Now, now listen with me. Think with me for a moment. If it means so be it, it means I believe it. So we come to the end of our prayer, and it's an expression of faith in God. When I say amen, it's not hanging up the phone. When I say amen, it means, now, Lord, I believe you've heard me, and you're going to answer my prayer today. 
It's an expression of faith. Notice that Jesus here didn't tell us to end the prayer saying, in Jesus' name. He taught that later, but it means more than just saying, in Jesus' name, amen. And we won't, I don't have time to develop that. But the model prayer doesn't end with Jesus' name. It ends, though, amen, so be it. Lord, I believe that you will be my Father. Your presence in my life will be operational. I believe, Lord, that your will can be done in my life. I believe you will provide for me and pardon me. I believe you're going to protect me. And, Lord, I believe, I believe you're the great God that I can praise today. These are the principles. You're not praying down through the rote outline, but these principles permeate our prayer. Now, that was point one. And let's see, point two, three, four. Maybe I need to shorten a point here. No, but I, here's point two, and I'm going to give it to you real quick. I promise you. But I don't want to just leave the theory up here that I've preached. I want you to understand what to do with it, okay? Here's what it will do for you if you start praying genuinely and sincerely using these principles. Number one, genuine prayer will change your focus from yourself to God. See, here's the problem with so many of us, myself included so often, is we're so full of self. All of our prayer, I listen to people pray, and they don't pray. They don't, it doesn't have anything to do with God. It's all about, Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. Sound like a kid sitting on Santa Claus's knee at Christmas time. Gimme, 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 Lord. And, and, and that's only mentioned in two different areas here in the Lord's Prayer. The prayer is for God to worship Him, to get to know Him. Draw nigh to God, James 4 and 8. He'll draw nigh, draw nigh to you. Listen to me. The reason you don't feel close to God is you don't pray. If we prayed these principles every day, genuinely and from our hearts, we, you, in, in six weeks, you would, you would be a new Christian. You'd be a new Christian. Number two, prayer is the truest form of worship. Not coming to church. Not listening to some preacher. Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, said, what a man is on his knees is what he is and no more. What a man is on his knees alone with God, that's what he is and no more. No food for your ego in, in praying. You get no applause or recognition. Nobody's going to say thanks because they don't know. It's you and God. Number three, what prayer will do for you? Prayer will bring conviction of sin. Even in the life of the Christian, you'll find that things that weren't so sinful before become very, very sinful to you. Isaiah met God one day in chapter 6. You can read it. And what did he say? Being in the presence of God, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He became conscious that the greatest prophet of the Old Testament had sin in his life.
prayer brought conviction of sin to him, and it will to me and to you. Number four, prayer brings unity. It builds unity. Acts 1 and 14, they were all in one accord in one place. You see, prayer creates a spirit of, of a unity of purpose, a unity of vision, a bond between people. Start praying with somebody, and you know what? You'll, you'll learn to love them. Start praying together, husband and wife, and your marriage will improve. It will build a unity that you've never had before. Number five, prayer creates expectancy. You anticipate that God is going to do something when you're praying about it. Number six, prayer is a statement of faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that seek him. Prayer is itself a statement of faith. People that don't have faith don't pray. Number seven, prayer obtains things from God we would not otherwise have. There's an old legend, and it's about an angel who a man died and went to heaven, and the angel's showing him around. He takes him out and shows him all these warehouses, and they're full of everything cars and bicycles and houses and clothing and everything you can imagine are in those warehouses are stacked. And they go on and on and on and on forever. And the man said, what is this? And the angel said to him, these warehouses are full of the blessings that people could have had, but they didn't pray. (laughs) It didn't happen. It's a legend now, but it's a great way to understand there are things that God, there are things we're missing in our life, qualities and things probably, because you have not, because you ask not. And lastly, humility and prayer is the first step to revival in your heart. The first step to revival in your heart. Will you stand with me to your feet, please, and bow your head?